Again, free thinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, I hope everyone out there had a great weekend. We're back this week with another powerful podcast. This week, we spoke to Tho Bishop. Tho is the current content director at the Mises Institute, he's also a podcast host and is author of the 2020 book, Anatomy of the Crash. Well, guys, I hope you're buckled up and ready for this one, as it was one of the most information-packed shows that we've done in a long time. Though is an absolute intellectual powerhouse, and there really wasn't a single question that we asked, though, that he didn't provide a thought-provoking or profound answer for. His answer when we asked him, How do we facilitate a more free world was particularly inspiring and crucial words that should inspire even the oldest veterans of the liberty movement. Now, if you're thirsty for anti-regime economic perspectives, intellectual consistency, and deeper dives, definitely make sure you're following Tho on Twitter, support the Mises Institute, and check out his podcast. But for now, here's our interview with Tho Bishop. Hey, Tho, thanks for joining us. I know right. you're a busy guy, so we very much appreciate your time today. So I've been following your work for a long time now and am a big fan of the Mises Institute, which you're currently the content director. You also co-host Radio Rothbard, which I've gleaned much knowledge from over the years. So yeah, we're excited to have you on the show. Now, Tho, you keep a close eye on finance, economics, history, liberty, the U.S. just crossed another milestone this week and just hit $33 trillion, uh, debt mark. Now, I know it was just a few months ago in June that that debt rolled into $32 trillion, and here we are three months later, and the printing press, the Federal Reserve printing press, has already increased the public debt by another trillion. This seems unsustainable. Uh, as Matt pointed out a few days ago, this is unprecedented. We had Peter Schiff on the show last month who, of course, predicted the 0708 crash, and he assured us that this would lead to an economic collapse. I was curious, do you share that same sentiment, and where do you see all this going? Like, should we be bracing for impending economic collapse? Yeah, I wish I had some some more optimistic news out there, but I think even um, the Federal Reserve itself, with its statement yesterday, um, is trying to get the public to kind of understand that the the ideas of having a um, sort of a, a soft landing as it tried to navigate the economy outside of the inflationary environment, um, you know, which is still extremely high, still screwing over average Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
for a very long time, the government's been able to kind of play with uh, with kid rules, right? You know, when when uh, you know the, the the aftermath of two thousand eight, um, you know, p- the, the period of you know basically zero percent interest rates, this this easy credit environment, um, assisted in the U.S. by the rest of the world following suit. So some of the concerns out there regarding um, you know weakness with the dollar immediately afterwards. Well, if, if everyone else is kind of doing the same thing that gave, you know, that, that, that gave the fed some cover there. Mm. Um, you know, fortunately when you have this combination of the inflation crisis forcing the fed, um, and central banks around the world to significantly pivot, uh, this accommodative interest rate policy. And you couple that with the binging of debt that again, it's a, it's a global issue, but you know, now over 33 trillion in the United States, um, interest on debt, you know, quickly becoming the most expensive uh, item on the, the U.S. Uh, balance sheet. Mm-hmm. You know, these are situations that are a lot harder for um, policymakers to kind of kick the can down the road. It's it's complete misfunction out there. There's no political will to, to deal with all of this, and so a lot of the benefits that the Fed and policymakers have had to mask their uh, their theft and recklessness in the past. Um, they, they don't have quite the same playbook that they can use right now. Yeah. Wow. Uh, perfect. You stated that perfectly. It's masking the corruption, masking the theft, and certainly playing with you know the kid gloves on. It, it, it definitely seems that way. And uh, yeah, I think you encapsulated that perfectly, though. And also, a, another thing I was kind of bring up about this, and another thing that we asked Peter Schiff was this whole international debt situation. And it seems like there's been more media attention about this international debt as of recently. And according to the IMF, who put out an article just last week about this, they mentioned that the global public debt tripled since the mid-1970s to reach 92% of GDP, uh, which is, I guess, just above $91 trillion, uh, as far as the global debt by the end of 2022. Um, why do you think they're talking about this more recently? And I mean, obviously debt's bad, but like, what are the potential consequences that this might have on our daily lives? Well, debt is bad, but you can get if, if you can get away with kind of refinancing it, then it's it's less bad. It's it's tomorrow's problem. Mm-hmm. And given that we now have the combination of a globe saturated with debt and significant, I mean, radical increases in the cost of financing that debt. Right. And again, if you look at the Fed's own projections for their own policies not that long ago, um, you know, they no one was forecasting, you know, over five percent federal funds rates um, and, and all the other calculations that stem downward from there. Um, so this is you, know, you, you can't you know, so, so you, know, you can't prepare for, for something that is you know, largely unthinkable. Um, within you know the, the thought process for most uh, you know most fund managers, most um, um, you know most corporate analysts, mo- you know, and, and policymakers, and you know you're seeing the cracks again. This is this is a global issue. Um, it is there's there's additional impacts you know you catalysts or you, you problems out there as well. Again, international turmoil is never good for markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you have you know rising um, populist movements that have challenged both in the U.S. and abroad that have challenged certain um, pre-existing norms in terms of international trade and the like. You have rising um, un- political unrest uh, all around the world. I mean, Germany right now, you know, it, it, that's a nation that went from being 
you know, one of the examples of what people viewed as stable governance. Um, a lot of bad things going on there, right? Not, not, not a defense of, uh, you know, Merkel's Germany by any means, but, you know, the international community kind of reckon, you know, kind of saw, okay, well, Germany is one of the adults in the room. You know, they're the, their own chosen path of self-destruction when it comes to energy markets, you know, having, you know, active green um, radicals within the governing partnership, not just in Germany, but, you know, throughout Europe um, as a, a great self-defeating blow. And so, you know, we have this incredible, you know, you know these, this economic environment is being stretched because of, you know, political disasters all around the world that, you know, when you start seeing, you know, large Chinese, you know, real estate developers going down, we start seeing rising defaults in, uh, you know, American corporate debt. Um, you know, when you start seeing uh, these things play out in credit events, um, you know, I, I think you, you have to start paying attention now, you know, a, a, a lot of the, the prescriptions out there, right? The, the solutions that the mainstream want to project are, you know, they, they don't want to deal with the underlying problems here. They're trying to find some kind of way to kick the can down the road, or they're trying to get the public to ignore what is going on around us. You had Paul Grubman, you know, a couple of weeks ago talking about how surreal, how great this, this this economy is doing so great that it's it's surreal. Even the most optimistic pe- people couldn't believe it. Um, so so on the one side you have those that just want to kind of gaslight the public for you know political ends. You know going to twenty twenty four. Um, then also just people recognizing that you know th- these these are not normal things going on. The stresses in regional banks. You know in March, for example. Um, again, the indicators are becoming so bright right now um, that I, I think only a New York Times pundit. Um, can kind of ignore them right now. <laughs> Certainly, man. And it, they are trying to gaslight the public and they are ignoring it. And I, maybe even going so far as to suppress it. You know, I've been trying to, I, I made this screen grab of the two articles from the New York Times from one from June and one from uh, this week that showed, you know, like in June, the New York Times headline, like Jason just said, you know, unprecedented $32 trillion, um, you know, the the national debt is, is crossing an unprecedented $32 trillion limit and then three months later boom so i put those two together in an image and i was trying to share it everywhere and man it got almost zero engagement it's pretty crazy but um yeah you you mentioned germany which you know can't help uh bring up the weimar republic whenever you know when someone brings up germany when we're talking about this th- these things you know so like considering this alarming growth of the national debt you know we're on like a a, a seeming trajectory towards either hyperinflation or uh, I guess a, defa- a deflationary collapse, right? Depending on how they try to handle it, which is very reminiscent of what happened in, uh, you know, Germany's Weimar Republic. In your opinion, which of these outcomes do you think is more probable and which might be, I guess, less catastrophic for Americans? Well, I, I think a, a deflationary crash is more likely, and, and part of this is because of the global scale of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, policymakers, the, the weaponization of the dollar. I mean, it's really the tip of the spear when it comes to U.S. foreign policy at this point. We've seen this in very clear display with the situation with Russia, but this has been something that's been building over time, right? You know, it started off with debanking uh, people with connections to Al Qaeda, and then it extends to North Korea and Iran, and no one's really complaining about it because, you know, obviously these are very bad countries. And all of a sudden, you start dealing with an economy like Russia and its international trade components, and people are start recognizing, oh, well, this this actually might be <laughs> this 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 might be something that uh, we should start worrying about 
Um, even even the Bank of England um, in 2017, obviously, was kind of response to to Trump. But even the Bank of England was talking about the need for a international uh, alternative to the dollar. The problem is that nothing is out there right now. Um, I know that there are some people that get very excited about um, what the BRICS are doing. You know, there is some <laughs> you know allusions to gold being in there. I'm, I'm very skeptical mm-hmm. of that because. Um, you know, the, the governments of BRIC countries have, you know, almost, with, with, with the exception of being Russia, which you know, actually historically has had a, a very good kind of debt to GDP ratio and has bought up a bunch of gold. Most of these other countries, I mean, Brazil under Lula is not particularly interested in physical restraint, right? I mean, the, the head of the BRICS bank is uh, the former president Rousseff, who is a socialist. So like the, the, the idea that, you know, we're going to trust the BRICS bank by maintaining some sort of serious you know, gold standard for na- international trade. Well, again, that's, that's requiring the belief that socialists have, have any more interest than Washington does in restraining its own powers there. And so I think in spite of all the headwinds and all the concerns that have come from other countries recognizing um, what the U.S. is doing with the dollar, we're not seeing that play out quite yet. I saw some figures earlier this week where – um, the percentage of global of international transactions and in various currencies, the dollar is actually up seven percent from t- uh, 2021. Um, the euro is down about 14 percent, and so I think um, in, in the short term we're, we're looking at I think a massive credit event. I think we're going to see uh, kind of a, a major financial crash. I don't think hyperinflation is on the horizon for the dollar. Until you have other currencies start following, mm. uh, start falling. So I think I think the, the dollar will be the kind of last domino domino out there. But I, I, th- I think you know I, I think the yen, for example, Japan is is in a very precarious situation. I could see again I, the the stresses that are going in Europe are are very big. Because again, the problem is that one of America's most successful exports uh, has been bad economic ideas, right? And you have central bankers that you know for <laughs> the most part all think the same. And so, again, everyone else has followed what the Fed has done or taken it to even more extreme limits, right? We saw negative interest rates in Europe uh, and in other countries. And so, you know, as bad as the Fed has been, it's very, very bad. Just about every other central bank has been as bad, if not worse. Mm. Um, they just don't have the same sort of network offense the dollar has, right? You know, you, you pee in the ocean, it's different than peeing in a kiddie pool. And most of these other countries <laughs> have engaged in this. You know, a great example of this is what's going on in Argentina right now. Um, which has now created a very interesting political environment um, with the, the rise of Javier Malay. Yes. Um, so I, I so I, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little more bullish uh, in terms of kind of the strength of the dollar. I'm, I'm not um, I'm not too concerned about hyperinflation. Um, I think inflation is going to linger for a while. Right? I mean, you know, it, it, there's nothing to, to take. You know, it's not going to set people paying. Um, you know, out, you know the, the outrageous uh, increases that we're seeing in grocery stores and like you know we're still going to get get hit from inflation. Um, in, in consumer prices for a while, um, but I, I don't think inflation or hyperinflation is on the on the table right now for the dollar until there's broader international um, house of cards that fall. Yeah, and BRICS will likely play a large role in that, right? With with the petrodollar in particular, like given what Kissinger had, did and what, what Saudi Arabia's agreed to for so long, and now that that's kind of falling apart. Didn't uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, they, Saudi Arabia is already violating that kind of verbal agreement and taking Brazilian dollars instead of the petrodollar uh, to kind of undermine the United States weaponization of the dollar, right? Um, like, and then here we are just adding to the to the uh, pot, like pushing everybody into this this brick scenario because of the war in Russia, right? And 
and the 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 use of the dollar through sanctions um you know driving everybody out of it we're like we're we're speeding up this uh this shift away from the dollar as a as the global reserve currency which is only going to make this whole situation that much worse right and uh i actually wanted to get into bricks with you i'm glad you brought it up um like how much of the BRICS alliances movements to undermine the dollar you know can be uh you know can be attributed to the growing u.s national debt and how might this influence the deflationary collapse that you kind of are seeing on the horizon well i i think that the the BRICS response is less about u.s debt levels than it is geopolitics right i, I think they're trying to um impose some dare I say, humility on the American foreign policy apparatus with the only, uh, the only kind of means they have. Um, and again, until you have a viable alternative internationally, um, this is going to continue to kind of, I think, kind of be a, just a, a constant tension rather than a, um, a major blow, right? I, I think, again, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people out there that um, you know, we'll, talk, we'll talk about, oh, well, China uh, is going to threaten the dollar with sort of a, a gold gold back yuan or something like that. And again, I, I don't think the Chinese government has any interest in this because again, if you look at the debt situations in many of these other BRIC countries, again, as bad as the US government is in terms of our debt situation, um, you know, China's even worse. Right? I think you know, you know, China's debt levels are even higher. Um, their economy is kind of Keynesianism on steroids, the extent to which you know you have you know, how much of their um, financial markets are tied into government-sponsored uh, enterprises, right? Whose underlying motivations are not purely so the, the profit-making process, but a lot of um, you know political motivations in there when it comes to job programs, when it comes to kind of maintaining social harmony and the like. This is how you get to the buildup of major ghost cities that end up getting taken down. Massive malinvestment within um, the Chinese economy out there. And so again, I, I'm not too. So I, I think from perspective of okay, well, you know, they're, they're concerned about the dollars, you know, about about debt out there generally. I think it's more a political response than it is a pure economic response. But that being said, um, you know, regardless of the international pressure to the dollar, the reality is is that domestically, the pressure that the Fed has created for itself, again, having this combination of high. Of, of you know outrageous national debt with this rising interest rate that creates a a, a, a domestic pressure um, and I so and, and so again even if the the international concerns may be more driven by foreign policy ideological changes it does not change the real threats the Fed has from within and again you know as we see playing out right now you know you're, they're having you know it seems we get this once a year now right you know some battle over um, spending bills um, you know, the inability for Congress to maintain any sort of normalization in terms of appropriations. But America's basically been a nation that is governing, um, you know, from a, a position of crisis um, ever since 9-11. Mm. Um, you know, we, we've seen a complete breakdown of long-lasting political norms. And political norms, when it comes to the operations of a country, are far more important than laws and, you know, what's in the Constitution, right? You know, this is actually kind of where the actual process of governing goes on. And you know, there, there's absolutely no serious will. I mean, you've got, you know, sure, yeah, I think short of 20 uh, Republicans, um, you know, trying to impose some very modest restrictions on future spending growth, right? Just trying to get things back 
closer to where things were before COVID. With that as an extreme and not you know anomaly, um, just I mean just the, the insanity of of how much spending and money creation coupled with attacks on the productive side that we saw in that period. I mean just trying to get things back to anywhere resembling um, pre-COVID levels is a political impossibility. Much less running back all the expansion um, that we saw in the previous decades there. So there, there is no political will to deal with these issues. And so I think the domestic pressure um, is 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 far greater than the international pressure until there is some real um, uh, seriousness of a, you know, a, a international coalition that can, can, can offer a viable alternative to the dollar. And that's going to require a government that has some sort of, of real integrity and international trust with it. Again, I don't think China is going to be at Russia for obvious reasons. Um, it's not going to be that. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is that if you look at China, for example, um, while I, I, China would love to see the dollar dethroned from um, you know its position as global reserve currency, their own domestic moves demonstrate that their top concern is less tackling the dollar and its global prominence than it is controlling the domestic population. For example, mm-hmm. while um, mm-hmm. China has purchased a whole lot of gold, um, you know the amount of gold that they have purchased relative to their debt expansion since 2008, their debt outpaces their gold reserves. Um, yet one area where they had a very, uh, and, and, and of course their gold hoardings are, are still smaller than America has, at least on paper, you know, until we, you know, not, not, not a lot of real real audits going on for Knox lately. <laughs> but but where, where China really did have an advantage was their Bitcoin holdings. And yet what we saw was China go to war with Bitcoin, I and mean, they've, they've eased up a little bit since then. But if China's top priority really was trying to replace the dollar, Bitcoin would have been a, a, a far more interesting tool for them um, to utilize that. But their concern is that if they actually have some sort of semblance of monetary freedom, then that's going to create their own internal pressures um, that, that they're, they're not looking to deal with. So, again, I, I think America's, America's biggest strength is simply the, the, um, the weaknesses of all the other governments out there. Again, because what, what America's been doing has, been, has created the model for the rest of the world. And that's why globally we are paying the price. Right. Wow. You're uh, you're on point here today, though. As usual, you're, you're making my head spin. I'm definitely looking forward to already re-listening to this one because I feel like you're you're saying so many things that are so accurate here. Let's sink our teeth into China a little bit. And I know you're you're just kind of talking about them, but um, and, and there might be some overlap. That's fine. We don't have to spend too much time on it. But I know that you made a quote tweet a few days ago that you mentioned that China's debt is more than 250 percent of the GDP, which is higher than the United States. And uh, today I was looking into this a bit. According to the New York, New York Times, uh, of course, you know, it's hard, as you mentioned, to really know because there's not much official data uh, coming out of China. But apparently JP Morgan Chase calculated last month, some, some researchers over there calculated last month that the overall debt within China, uh, including households, companies, and the government, uh, was even higher than what you suggested and had reached 282% of the country's GDP. Um, I was trying to find like China's total debt. Uh, Al Jazeera you know, claims that it's 14 trillion. Uh, who knows if that's accurate or not, but um, you know, that's, that's half of what the US is. Um, in 2020, Japan became the country who owns the most US debt, uh, but China is right behind them with nearly 900 billion of course, it feels like maybe these numbers obfuscate the real economic reality, but like the right always suggests that, you know, we're, we're being threatened by China. Uh, you know, there's almost that that 
kind of joke that we'll all be speaking Chinese here in, in like 20 years. Uh, do you feel like that's the case? Like, do you, I mean, do you really see a, a threat coming from China or is that more of just an exaggeration? I, I think China can be dangerous, but not in some of the capacity of it replacing the U.S. economy as as the, the global leader. Um, because again, that they have they have embraced you know, precisely the same you know economic philosophy that has destroyed the West or undermined the West. Again, it's, it's Keynesianism on, on steroids. There, um, you know that's that's the thing is that the government the, the Chinese government is a lot more efficient in the way it can do things. But it's efficient. But that means when you know they're 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 really dedicated to doing bad things, they're they're very good at doing that. You know, I think there's this kind of meme, and it's something that I think is is held on both the left and the right, where it kind of looks at China and assumes that their leaders are just so much smarter, so much more capable than ours. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm it's very awkward to be in a position of you know, <laughs> defending a, a government that has you know. In his current form, I mean, I, you could you can you know pick on John Fetterman, but he's about average for for everyone there. He just <laughs> is more visible with it. Um, but you know, America's governance is you know, very clearly full of you know clowns and and grifters of all sorts. But you know, China's not much better in in this regard, right? You know, China, China is not a lot more enlightened um, than than our system. They just have a lot more kind of political. Um, uh, uh, a lot more kind of state capacity to, to do certain things. And, um, you know, so one of the arguments that has existed for China, right, you know, for one, it's, it's their manufacturing capacity um, and their manufacturing capacity and, and has been aided less by, say, like the economics of low labor, right? The labor costs in China have gone up significantly you know, in the last few decades. If you're really interested in, you know, getting cheap sh- uh, stuff produced, um, for labor costs, you can go to Bangladesh, you can go to you know Vietnam, something like that, where the labor is much cheaper. Um, the reason why you have such a buildup within the Chinese domestic economy has been the international corporations wanting access to the Chinese domestic marketplace, right? When you think about the size of the of the Chinese consumer class, and so you have companies that are willing to play ball with all all the strings attached that come with China because they want the ability to sell their stuff to Chinese consumers. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that the expectations of Chinese consumers being kind of an, an, an ever-growing, you know, being being the next, you know, you know, the, the next West in terms of of purchasing power, um, you have a dynamic there where one of the strengths of the Chinese economy was its savings rate, right? You know, and it's true, Chinese citizens um, are far more frugal um, on average than Americans. Um, but the problem is, though, is that their savings. Um, you know, can China adopting the same sort of low interest rate policy that America's had, what that meant was that Chinese savers were not just putting their money in a bank account for the most part, right? Um, they were investing in real estate as a means of holding their savings. They were investing in um, financial investment products in the in shadow banks. And so what that means is that, you know, you, instead of getting, you know, 1% interest rate at, you know, China first bank, right, you put it into, you, you give it to their, you know, auxiliary operation where they invest in businesses and like, and the stability of the shadow banking sector um, is is not very strong, right? If, if you talk to people that have, uh, you know, engaged in accounting um, practices over in China, like they'll, they'll come back and just talk about how wild it is. Um, you, you don't have a lot of transparency within it. You've got um, within this this massive credit expansion that we've seen in China since 2008, 
you have businesses that start off, you know, selling furniture and then they're in, you know, and then all of a sudden they have a massive portfolio and sort of, you know, real estate investments and things like that. Um, there's a really great book on this topic called China's Great Wall of Debt by a former Wall Street Journal reporter named Denning McMahon, who was an Australian journalist who spent 10 years in China. Um, and again, I, I think the, the important thing to understand is that, you know, the post-2008 world, that distinction is extremely important, right? You know, if, if it's us that understand the Fed is bad, right? You know, we will often talk about 1971. We, we know the Fed was bad before 2008. But the, the changes to central banking after 2008 in a global sphere has, has created an entirely different world. And similarly, China, which was having, you know, a, a very real economic revolution, it, it was becoming much wealthier. It, 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 it was liberalizing. It was kind of doing these sort of things that were kind of creating a foundation that could have led it to being this, this major economic power after 2008, this is where you kind of saw this massive takeoff of their own form of credit expansion. You saw the traditional uh, financial sphere become increasingly uh, taken up by state-backed enterprise uh, institutions. And so smaller businesses had to go into these other, other pool of funds and things like that. And so you know, the, the, the same bubble that we have in the US has been going on in China on even a greater scale. And so that's, that's why, like, you know, as, as Louis de Valmesis explains in, in Theory of Money and Credit, it's not just simply money creation, it's the creation of credit itself that's unbacked, right? This this creation of fiduciary media. And that's where China has a, has a, a ton of issues right now. Um, and then you, you couple that with um, President Xi that has taken on kind of an explicitly more sort of neo-Maoist sort of approach to business where he's had no problem kind of going after the golden gooses that have laid the eggs, right? You know, Jack, Jack Ma was kicked out of Alibaba. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of their most successful, you know, private business leaders, um, you know, they, they have, they've been having to walk an increasingly tight line in order not to run across uh, Xi's party. And, you know, as you have this growing sense of social unrest, when you have you, know, you, you couple it with their own heavy-handed lockdowns in large portions of the country, combined with this this financial crisis, which was going on before COVID. Right, you you had you had large banks. Um, I was I had an article in, in the, the Washington Times in 2019 that was talking about how you had pretty sizable Chinese banks melting down before COVID, um, in part because of pressures from um, the, the the trade war, and part just because of their own um, you know bad bad accounting practices and like. You know, you, you had basically Chinese pension funds being used to bail out, you know, some of these these economic actors. And so China, which, again, for the period of, of their you know, post-communist, you know, sincere kind of economic communist rule, they are engaging in financial crises that they have not had to navigate in the past. And this is all creating social unrest that, you know, they have their own economic problems that they're, they're having to wrestle with. And one of the things that's always in the back of the mind of Chinese leaders in America, politicians, um, you know, view a financial crisis and they're worried about, you know, getting kicked out of office and having to, you know, take up their lobbying gig earlier than they might have wanted to. <laughs> in China, they see economic unrest and they worry about the country burning down. And so, again, like they, they, their, whole, their, their whole sense of what is at stake. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the, I think the risk that does exist in China is that when you have a very large percentage of the country, you know, of military-aged males that have no shot of ever getting married, never having... Um, you know, a family life because, you know, you communist policies killing off, you know, you know, you know, you know one child policies and, you know, killing off a whole bunch of girls uh, of that generation. 
um, you know, how do you deal with a bunch of military aged men who do not have the greatest prospects, who do not have that sort of fulfillment? Well, then that can lead to a need for militarization, um, you know, in, in a way that could, you know, that, that, that's, that, that handles that problem from a variety of ways, you know, tighter political control. You, you, you get some of them out in front of cannons. Um, you know, there's, there's a variety of, of things that could benefit a state in that dynamic. And we all, ha- all have to remember that, again, the, the ruling ideology of most governments out there is one that believes the solution to the Great Depression of the 1930s was World War II. And when you understand that that's, that, is the, that is their perspective on how, you know, what, what, what made, uh, what, what jump-started back the economy, the, 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 the policy solutions, the, uh, their, their, their chosen reaction to uh, economic instability should be uh, terrifying to all of us. War is the health of the state, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's, it's like this perfect storm of uh, corruption and monetary crisis just unfolding in front of us, man. It's like, as, as Jason said, we had a... We had Peter Schiff on uh, last month, and he kind of provided a little bit differing point of view. And he said, like, you know, while there's ultimately the U.S. economy's doomed, there's nothing to fix it. But uh, he remained like optimistic for the rest of the world. Like the U.S. collapse would actually improve the rest of the world, right? And then um, earlier this month, I read an article by Ron Paul, who um, also mentioned a similar idea, like where he discussed that. You know the initial hardships uh, from from these policies of the central banking uh, class will certainly have you know lead to great suffering uh, here domestically and and worldwide. But he, Ron Paul said that they would be kind of short lived, right? And I mean, Ron Paul's been right on a lot of shit. So I, I guess that's what I want to ask: is like, do you kind of share this perspective or on like on that timeline? Or, uh, you know, like how long do you think that that initial suffering that this is ev- inevitably going to lead to will last? And what does the positive scenario look like on the other end? Well, I think the positive scenario is a realization. It ultimately comes down to a replacement of the ruling class in the United States that could allow for a completely different approach to managing an economic crisis. Um, now, how, how viable it is, what, what form does that look? Is it something that can be attainable at the national level? I'm very skeptical of that. Is there yeah. a dynamic where you could start seeing um, greater, um, you know, more aggressive actions at the state level where, you know, the kind of the, the, the American response is no longer a national response, but more of a, a regionalized response um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, not entirely sure. You know, I, I don't want to forecast exactly what that's going to be. Um, again, you know, as someone who has been concerned about these issues since 2008, 2009, 2000, you know, that 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 mm-hmm. period watching this unfold, um, you know, the the creativity of policymakers to find a new device that allows them to kind of kick the can down the road. Um, their, their creativity has, has exceeded mine almost at every step of the way, <laughs> so I don't want to necessarily make any predictions there. Um, but I, I do think that there, I mean, I, I th- there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about America broadly, right? Our, our national, our, our natural resources, our, our productive power, right? You know, the, the real America 
um, is, is, you know, has tremendous amount of advantages over the rest of the world. We've got a, a parasitic financial and political class that needs to be done away with, but, you know, they can always, you know, I'm sure we can, they, they can learn to code um, until AI takes away those jobs. Um, you know, but so, so that's something that has to be reckoned with. And again, how that looks is, is, is an open question. Um, but I, I am, you know, I, I do think, though, that anything that that forces the American empire to recede more inward would be a, a positive force for the, for the rest of the world. Um, and, 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 and in particular, um, again, I, I, I think Europe is, is, is a dying continent right now. I think their internal problems, um, which I, I think go beyond politics. I think there's a spiritual problem there as well. Um, I, 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 I'd be far more pessimistic about Europe than I would be, America, and thankfully, I, I do think we are seeing green shoots out there um, when it comes to South America. Um, you know, since we are in such a clown world, um, it's amazing. You know, I, I, I think in a very short period of time, if you have any states that are able to demonstrate increasing the quality of life of the residents, um, then that as a model that other leaders want to adopt. You know whether or not it comes from you know, the goodness of their hearts or just based opportunism as a secondary point, um, but kind of similar to the way that um, you saw in the United States during COVID, um, you know, the willingness for say like Governor DeSantis in Florida to push back on some of the uh, most egregious excesses of the COVID regime led to other governors wanting to kind of have their own moment. Um, you know, it's usually the, the, the COVID policies that usually started off with a tweet from Anthony Sabatini when he was in the state legislature. Uh, you know, a month later, it became policy from DeSantis and six months later it became something that uh, uh, the governor of Texas was trying to take credit for. Um, I think you can have to see a similar dynamic in international politics where, you know, you, you look at what uh, Bukele is doing in El Salvador, both on the, the crime standpoint, their economic foundations are, are strengthening, you know, someone who has been very... Um, um, eager to bring in Bitcoiners and sort of the, the innovative class out there that I think are far more attuned to the realities of the global situation than a lot of others. Um, you know, now every South American politician on the center right, you know, is promising to be their Bukele. Um, you see what's going on in Argentina with Javier Malay. If, if Javier Malay is able to, um, you know, within a few years, make the quality of life for Argentinians better, then hopefully that creates an opportunity for other um, you know, other South American leaders to want to steal policy from this, you know, self-described, self-proclaimed uh, Rothbardian. And so I think, you know, given that we are, again, given how, how dire this, you know, just this global um, state of just political stupidity and incompetence, all it requires are a few test cases that demonstrate a, an alternative. And I think ultimately any sort of successful alternative is going to be moving closer in our direction because our direction is is a real one right it's not relied upon mm -hmm. um you know government ponzi schemes and a suppression of of natural liberty um that degrades you know human ability to to prosper and cro thrive and, and problem solve i think anything that actually leads to a quality of outcomes is going to end up you know being towards uh, a, a period of, of property and stability and so hopefully outside of the western controlled you know, the U.S. controlled area, um, there are opportunities to show a, a different path. Now, I know we've m mentioned uh, Javier Malay a few times, and I certainly want to talk about him a little bit. But first, I have more of maybe a, a philosophical question for you, though. And um, 
you know, we we're talking about kicking the can down the road. I mean, I don't think it gets any more uh, kicking the can down the road than placing uh, a lot of this uh, debt onto our, our children. So according to the Congressional Budget Office, a child born in 2023 will be $78,000 in debt uh, in publicly held federal debt, to be specific. By the time that child is 18, the current estimates claim it will be $143,000 dollars in debt. And by the age of 30, there'll be $226,000 in debt. So, I mean, obviously this is absolutely insane, but we rarely hear about it by our elected officials, by politicians, uh, the mainstream media, even the alternative media doesn't really talk much about it. Now, I do remember Stefan Molyneux making a big deal about this quite a few years back on YouTube. And it's always stuck with me because essentially it's just out of control and reckless spending in Washington that's creating this huge tax burden for young Americans. And not to mention that this is basically straight up just intergenerational slavery of the unborn. To me, it's, of course, insidious. But why don't we ever hear about it? Like why? I mean, I know economics are largely not popular by the mainstream, but why is everybody quiet about this fact? Am I am I missing something here? Well, I think one of the reasons is, is because, you know, the, the populist moment that we're in, there are very few um, populists, Ron Paul being an exception. Um, you know, Murray Rothbard and Lou Rockwell were very good at this in the 90s. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the, the populist anger at the regime is typically coupled with a, um, at best, uh, agnosticism on economic issues and more often than not um, a their own version of, um, you know, want, you know, ignoring the, the trade-offs and kind of adopting, you know, wanting to adopt the state for their own short-term views. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can see debates within, um, you know, between you know, Pat Buchanan and some of the paleoconservative crowd with, um, you know, Mises scholars like Hans Hermann Hoppe debating these issues. Um, and the, the frustrating thing is that, you know, from a, a cultural standpoint, right, from a, a stated desire of what, you know, paleoconservatives or what mo- pop, most populists, you know, say they, they want as an end goal, um, you know, someone like Hoppe or, or Murray Rothbard, um, they have the same desired ends. They just, you know, are also economists and, you know, understand these things and, and they, you know, they, they, they can't get that through their head. Um, and so I think that's one reason why in this anger, you know, where you, you hear a lot more radical language regarding the extent of the state, um, it's difficult for them to take that next step and understand what is fueling all of it. Um, and I think it's particularly frustrating, yeah. you know, given valid concerns out there about financialization, about uh, corporate consolidation. Um, you know, the closest thing we can kind of get to is, uh, you know, people like RFK Jr. talking about the very insidious incentives at play with like the biomedical security state and, and, you know, how you have state liabilities for these large corporations that, you know, end up then using their lobbying power to, you know, throw a never, never ending list of vaccines that kids have to get right and all to the bottom line. So even if you have, and, and the problem is, and, and to be fair, most free market defenders, I don't think are particularly good at appealing to this crowd either. Mm-hmm. Um, often there's kind of been this materialistic, I think, defense of free markets where like, look at all this cheap stuff. And don't get me wrong, cheap stuff is important. Anyone that says otherwise has you know, lived a very privileged life. I'm, I'm not trying to, to take away the importance of that. Um, but I, I think that ultimately free markets have to be defended from a, from a moral position. Yes. And you know, often, again, if you, if you look at uh, the sort of people running around the Cato crowd, um, I can understand why, you know, 
them as individuals are very off-putting to precisely the sort of people that are aware of of the theft of the state. Um, but yeah, but but you're 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 you touch on I, th- I think the most important issue out there, which is this this massive um, generational warfare that is being played off from the political class. And again, you look up the the age makeup of Congress in the Senate; it's never been older. Um, the extent to which the the policies of you know you know are are meant to protect the uh, wealth of older generations is particularly true in the housing market. I mean, the, the Fed, you know, his entire mission for you know, you know, ten year plus ten plus years now has been to prop up housing prices by buying as many you know mortgage backed securities as they get a, get a hold of. Great if you owned a house, bad if you're trying to buy a house. Right. Um, and of course, you know, this this entire intergenerational um, wealth transfer dynamic um, should be predictable. Um, given that uh, John Maynard Keynes was a uh, uh, you know, pedophile, I mean, literally uh, uh, you know, purchasing young boys uh, during his, uh, his his tourism efforts. And so surprise, surprise, an economic system based off the work of a pedophile screws over future generations. Um, it's a shocking development. Um, and I, I, that's why ultimately when we have conversations out there about economic solutions or you, know, you, you can never trust, I think, a politician um, trying to communicate on America's particular debt issues if they are unwilling to consider the uh, idea of a, a default of national debt. Um, given where we are, given the lack of political will, there is no solution to America's debt problems that do not involve some form of default. Um, the question is simply, is it going to be a default in the form of inflation or default in, in terms of you know, actual debt repudiation? Um, debt repudiation would be my preferred view. Um, it's something that Murray Rothbard trumpeted back when you know debt was you know far far smaller than it is right now. Um, and I think ultimately some form of debt repudiation, you know, both in terms of the national debt. I mean, also I think the student loan issue is something that again conservatives are very blind on. I understand you know, not wanting to. You, you look at you know most of the people coming out of universities these days, and I recognize you know, not wanting to give those people. Um, uh, you know, making it any easier for them because most of them, you know, the, the, the amount of time you spend in college is usually uh, inversely related to your your competencies these days. Um, but ultimately, if you have a society that younger generations have to put off buying a house, ha- you know, getting married, raising a kid, that the sort of individual that you create in that sort of environment is not one that's going to lead itself to the preservation of, civiliz- uh, of civilization or any sort of social conservative ends. And again, this is a very real issue that again, most people just, you know, they, they want to just kind of dunk on future generations. Again, looking at TikTok, I understand the, the, the bias towards that. Um, but ultimately, these, you know, these are, these are very real problems. They are problems that are created by the baby boomer generation, the policy makers that they put in power. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you just said so much. I, I don't think I could unpack even half of that. So maybe it would just be easier seeing we're getting short on time here to move on to the next question. And that was an excellent, excellent answer. Um, yeah, so I was kind of curious seeing that CBDCs are here kind of on the horizon. Uh, we actually just aggregated a story from Zero Hedge last week about the recent G20 meeting in New Delhi. Uh, during that meeting, there was serious talk by you know these leaders devising a plan to eventually impose these digital currencies and digital digital IDs on their populations. Um, now I know that the CBDCs are already being romanticized by these people. In fact, uh, the IMF managing director Bo Lee recently said, "By programming CBDCs, that money can be precisely targeted for what people can own." and how the money can be utilized. Uh, obviously that seems pretty ominous and I'm sure Orwell is rolling over in his grave right now. 
Uh, and, you know, there's some major economies such as Russia and Japan that are uh, piloting CBDCs this year. I guess there's a couple questions here. Like, do you envision that CBDCs possibly being like a Trojan horse for a p potential collapse? Like, this is our savior. This is our way out. Um, and, you know, how can Americans prepare for them if the U.S. currency is exclusively a digital dollar eventually in the future? You know, I, I think it's uh, it's, it's definitely a uh, a Trojan horse, but a Trojan horse that is is you know explicitly vulgar and, and deformed and, and very ominous um, at a superficial level. And um, I mean, it, it is the natural evolution of this sort of progressive, um, you know, fascist society that we're living in. Um, it's it's a, it's a technocratic uh, uh, wet dream, um, and thankfully the the ruling class has so overplayed their hand that one of the upsides of the very naked power grab here has been that there is kind of that boiling water dynamic with the frog, where I, I think that prior to COVID, prior to um, you know some of the very heavy-handed policies, I mean around the world, whether it's shutting down you know farms in Denmark over climate change or some of them, you know the, you know, the various dynamics where the, the progressive worldview has resulted in you know, heavy-handed and overt authoritarianism rather than its, its more softer, gentle form um, that, that we have gotten at times. I think the skepticism and therefore the conversation over money has exploded um, relative to what it used to be. I mean, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have normal people that, will, that, that, that are interested in the topic of CD, CBDCs. And so I think so long as there are viable alternatives out there um, I, I think there's going to be resistance in them being used. One of the things that does concern me, though, is, you know, for example, in the United States, and, and this, this is, again, where I would like to see some sort of real political leadership being proactive on it, is that it's very easy to imagine, um, you know, CBDCs being lumped in with some sort of universal basic income style mm. new form of social, social welfare network yes. um, and, and using that as the way in. And uh, it's very difficult to turn down free money. I mean, it's just the reality of the game, particularly when again, policy decisions have made us, us so much poor. Um, so it, it is a grave concern. And um, you know, thankfully, the the resilience of Bitcoin, yes. um, you know, has you know, even in the face of some of the most hostile uh, uh, regimes out there, and China's you know, try to, to push multiple tools to crack down on it. Um, you know, I, I think that you know that. There are viable alternatives out there that that will allow for you know civilization to, to exist at the very least at the margins but hopefully the the mask has dropped so far that um that there will be enough political resistance against them um and at the very least for them to be pockets of resistance out there and again you know i'm, I'm increasingly um you know desperate just to just to see a few a few nations out there um, willing to offer a different path because again, as long as there is one free nation out there, there is still hope. Um, and again, and, and, and again, I'll, I'll, the, the, in, the, in a longer sense, you know, the, the self-destructive nature of all this, right? You know, the, the destruction of poverty and you know, the, the, the destruction of, of prosperity and, and wealth. Um, you know, no, nothing continues forever. Generally, um, I would just prefer to be dealing with a time frame that um, I can I can be around around to see rather than just uh, nothing but. Uh, kind of black pill doomerism for for my time <laughs> yeah good god hopefully we don't get to that point and I, I saw on twitter yesterday that there are multiple bills in congress right now being proposed by the political class to 
to prevent CBDCs from becoming a thing, you know, and that's that's kind of an optimistic outlook, right? Well, no, that's what scares me though, because I mean, look at the war on drugs, right? And that that just almost gave them a, a racket. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, they could be used to wipe to go after crypto too. It could be another Trojan horse in a, in a different light, you know? Sure. Well, and and, so. well, and, the, and the Biden administration started to crack down the crypto industry with mm-hmm. their, their kind of new firm over Operation Chokepoint um, is is one of the great crimes out there right now. The SEC is completely weaponized. Um, it gets a lot less attention, and I understand it's you know talking about. You know, crypto funds is, is it doesn't necessarily draw the same sort of emotional response as you know, talking about prosecuting, you know, school board moms, right? <laughs> I, sure. I, I I get that, um, but it's a it's a major it's a major problem out there. And my concern is that well, I, I do think that if you were to have, um, you know, say a, a, a Republican takeover of Congress for a couple of years, um, you know, one of the the bright spots out there has been the ideological shift in some of the DC institutions, her- heritage in particular. Um, which has long been kind of a neoconservative, um, you know, kind of a, a, a think tank for really bad ideas um, that Republicans have pushed in the past. Uh, their economics wing is very Austrian now. Um, Peter St. Ange is a good buddy of mine. Oh, yeah. um, he's doing a lot of their monetary stuff. Um, he's been spreading the good word internally. Um, they helped craft some of the anti-CDC bills, and it's become such a popular issue that I think Republicans would have some willingness to actually get something done there. I'm just worried that, you know, with the way the, the political environment is, that you know, we, we could very well be in a, a, a post-national world, um, you know, given the changes to election laws and things like that. I mean, it's a very real possibility that we actually have a, a one-party state at the national level. And so the question then is, you know, what is the willingness for state governments to resist? Florida has has banned CBDCs in, in, in their own way. It'd be interesting to see how that looks like when the rubber meets the road, if the feds really try to put the, the, the spur to it. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, you know, having state leadership on monetary issues is going to be vital. I mean, I'd love to see you know more states you know buying up gold and, and Bitcoin on their balance sheets to help protect themselves. Um, you know, from the conse- from the consequences of uh, you know, federal policies, but I, I think increasingly a more decentralized approach in the United States um, is going to be where, where the where the real victories are going to if if they are to be had politically are going to be had. Um, the question is, you know, is there a generation of um, state leaders that are willing to do what it must be done in that sense? I I wholeheartedly agree, man, and and I I like what you had said earlier about you know, and you just reiterated that point with governors who you know they champion. Uh, freedom over tyranny during the COVID era, and and they gain traction, you know, and they and their ideas spread to others. And I look at the Republican Party, and there's a lot of people in it today that remind me of me, you know, 15 years ago when I was just waking up. And unfortunately, a lot of them believe a bunch of dumb shit, and that's uh, <laughs> that's completely wild. And and uh, but I think that that you, you, that's a phase that you go through when you start waking up to the the whole entire behemoth that is out there. But the governors, right? The governors or the the states or even even smaller, uh, you know, entities like cities or something that that would have these ideas. And and as Ron Paul says, you know, no army can halt an idea whose time has come. And I'm totally in that camp. But uh, I think that you know, as the grip comes down, and I and I actually see it out there. You know, I see the like the people that are challenging the Federal Reserve and many. People think that playing by these established rules or uh, or voting is not the proper way to dismantle this banker uh, parasitic class that's uh, has the grip on the country, you know, or, or the world rather. Instead, like they pr- propose a more uh, forceful means, you know. And like I said, I'm in the 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 camp that no idea can stop. Uh, I mean, uh, no army can stop an idea whose time has come, but. 
there's a there's a larger camp growing out there that may use a more forceful means. And given that we're, you know, we're rapidly approaching that day where that choice may have to be made, uh, you know, how do you see it playing out? And and um, which camp are you in? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm in the camp when it comes to solutions. I'm I'm a you know all of the above sort of, of dynamic. I think it'd be a mistake, obviously, for to sure. put all of your eggs in the political basket. But I, sure, I think sure. I think um, you know there there are there's a there's a role for politics, and there again, you know, my individual liberty during COVID as a Floridian was uh, dramatically impacted by you know 33,000 votes. That was the difference between DeSantis and, and Gillum, um, which I'll always be very appreciative of. Um, but you know, I think there's a role for, for agorism. Again, I think the biggest, um, you know, the weapon that we have, the biggest improvement has been um, the, the creation of real things in, in the case of Bitcoin um, as a viable option there. Um, so I, I think I think all outcomes, you know, all, all different skill sets are needed in, in the battle against the regime. But ultimately it is, you know, you know, this, this, it does come down to a battle of ideas. So last few, last few years I've really been um, interested in the history of revolution. There's a, a great podcast out there by uh, Mike Duncan, who uh, wrote a great book, uh, The Storm Before the Storm, about kind of pre-Caesarian Rome and kind of the collapse of the Republic. I do not recommend following him on Twitter. He has very basic bitch ideas on modern <laughs> politics, um, but his history is very good. And um, and ultimately, you know, the history of revolution, um, you know, it, it's it's you 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 have you have different phases of a revolution. You have it's always violent. It seems in the end. Well, well it's, more more often than not. Um, again, right. I, America, I think I think is, is, is I mean, I, I get that there's a, there's a war mixed in with there, but America being one of the more successful. Um, examples, but you start off with a broad coalition of grievances. Um, something arises in the aftermath. Um, you have a leader that um, you know that, that, that typically takes that has to be personified because most people view things through a, a personality cult, whether we like it or not. And so ultimately, the ideology of what comes after is what dictates the outcomes. You know, Haiti became uh, uh, you know uh, became a disaster after the revolution in spite of very righteous grievances because there was really no great man that was kind of able to bring stability afterwards. Um, South America, you had the attempt there with, with Bolivar, who's a very fascinating figure, but he wasn't able to main, he, he didn't have enough people around him to kind of create a, a lasting um, structure. And so he ended up dying, you know, in, in exile, penniless, having to borrow a shirt. Um, you know, the ideas of Napoleon after France, I mean, he was very much a, a Colbert um, mercantilist and that kind of end up fueling his need for ever growing to ter ter territorial expansion that led to his downfall. Um, so the question is, what is going to be the ideology of whatever, you know, this, this, whatever the next chapter is, what is the ideology underpinning it? Um, Argentina, I think, again, offers a very promising example of, you know, someone who is well-versed in the same books that we are fans of. And so hopefully that will be an example. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, we need to get the ideas of Mises and Rothbard in the, the Austrian school out there for a, a new generation of elites to, to build upon. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that you have, you know, people out there like Peter Thiel, who's, you know, very well-versed, you know, he's, he's read his Hoppe. Um, you know, so I was very excited about, you know, someone like Blake Masters. I know he was not successful last time around, but, you know, he, he was like someone that read Human Action in high school. You know, we need, we need more of those sort of people um, that are successful. And so hopefully, ultimately, um, the ideas of the Mises Institute, um, you know, promotes and, and you know, helps cultivate new generations of scholars to continue that literature. Um, hopefully that will be a part of the solution for what comes next. Because again, I, I think ultimately the, 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 the viewpoints and the, 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 the ideology of Mises and Rothbard are, are true. I think they produce the best outcomes. So hopefully that will be a part of whatever comes next ideolo ideologically. Yeah, that makes you yeah. my friend. And uh, it, it certainly seems like we're in a, a war of ideas right now. Hopefully 
you know, the, that Ron Paul effect will uh, influence more people to uh, picking up an economics book and learning more about this stuff. But we are getting close now to uh, the hour mark. Is it cool if we get two more questions in or? Sure. You, okay. So uh, we were just talking about Javier Malay and um, I know that you and Ryan McMakin, uh, the other co-host of Radio Rothbard, did a video entitled Javier Malay's Populist Strategy in Argentina is Working, uh, which looked like it had triple the number of views your average po podcast videos get. Uh, so I, I think it's safe to say he's a very popular figure in politics right now. We were just mentioning this on our podcast with Maj Teray, uh earlier this week that he did that Tucker Carlson episode on X and like it has a whopping 419 million views now. That's like 150 million more views than the Carlson interview with Trump. And some people are calling this the most viewed anarcho-capitalist interview ever. So, I mean, is this Argentina's Ron Paul moment and... I guess on the flip side, you know, just to be logically consistent as anarchists, how do you feel about supporting a politician? I mean, even if he's like a based anarcho-capitalist, you know, who calls out the commies and, and the systemic corruption and everything. I mean, ultimately, he'd still be utilizing state violence. Right. So, like, what's your thoughts on this? Um, well, I, I have I have no problem with with the, the practical dynamic there. I think ultimately anarcho-capitalism um, is a. Uh, political strategy best done by exit so you know what you want you know so i, I don't think that you're going to see a, an, an ancap political revolution over like a, a large you know, kind of taking over a state i think what you can best hope for is the emergence of private cities um, where people can can exit to i, I think most of society i, I, th I think it requires a, a certain sort of individual to really want to take on the mantle of the responsibilities of self-governance and again, so I, I, I'm very excited about, um, again, I know they're facing political turmoil um, with the, the Haitian, with the, uh, the Honduran government, but you know, projects like Prospera and the like, um, and then there's all sorts of variety of very interesting free city, free um, uh, type projects out there. I think that is the, the future from a, an ANCAP perspective. It's something that must be built mm. um, rather than something that's going to happen from political revolution itself. And I, I welcome those things. And so I think the second best al alternative is the promotion of, um, you know, a, a pragmatic, um, you know, so, someone who's willing to, to, to adopt, you know, a, yeah, maybe a, more of a, a minarchist stance um, and, and taking over the levers of power because I'd much rather them be in the hands of allies than enemies. Yes. Um, and I, I think what Malay is doing right now is, is again, you know, it, it, is, it is a, it, it's a very rare situation. I, I, it's not something that I think was um, inevitable in the face of financial crisis, obviously we've seen hyperinflation events in other parts of the world that have not created a Javier Malay. Argentina is just very lucky to have someone of the stature of Javier Malay with the charisma. With the charisma. I mean, you know, for, for those who are not familiar with Malay, the, the best way to understand them from an American libertarian perspective is imagine if, um, you know, if, if, if Peter Schiff, um, you know, was Donald Trump. Um, you know, he, 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 he was someone who was a, a very outspoken, very entertaining um, economic commentator, someone who had a very successful business background um, with his financial um, firm. Um, some way, and I, I know it, it gets some skepticism because you know he did an event with the the, the World Economic Forum in 2014, looking at labor markets in, mm. um, in in Argentina. But you know he he came across Austrian economics, my understanding, that in his in the Malay timeline, I take it for what it's worth, it was about 2015, as we kind of discovered um, Mises and Rothbard. Mm. Um, but but you know he he was an elite. Right, like he, he was someone of sig significance and stature, 
who was able to, you know, create a cult of personality around him with his charisma mm-hmm. and has been able to ride the discontent um, of the, co- the costs and consequences of socialist, you know, very leftist, uh, you know, multi-decades regime in Argentina um, into this grand political revolution. Um, and so I'm, I'm very encouraged. We'll, we'll see what the outcomes there play out, right? He, he could be a disappointment. The expectation should probably be that he's, he's going to be a disappointment. Yeah, but yeah. If, if he's not, I mean, the same way, I mean, Bukele has... Um, has been effective in his own writing, and I'm certainly not going to call Bukele a, a, an orthodox Austrian by any means, but at least his friends with safety and Amus, which is better than most. Um, and so so hopefully, if, if he has success, I think that, that would be a wonderful thing for um, Austro-libertarian ideas and also for, for Rothbardian ideas. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I, I wish him the best. It's been, and I, I do think that he has a, a Ron Paul effect in the extent that because he is a man of ideas and not simply a populist figure like Bolsonaro or Trump, um, that the, the ideas were more about coalition building um, rather than something that kind of held in his gut. Um, you know, you are seeing a spark and in interest, um, not just in Argentina, but throughout South America in Austrian ideas. It's been assisted by other institutions out there. There's some great universities. We have some great scholars in the Spanish-speaking world. And um, again, all of this is creating a very positive effect, and hopefully it's something that can be replicated in other nations that are having their own stresses. And again, as we mentioned at the start of the show, I think many nations out there are going to be feeling the, the pain over the next couple of years. And so again, having people that have our ideas for solutions um, that are prepared to take advantage of that and be political leaders, I think that'd be a, a net positive for human liberty generally. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think we could uh, understate the role of the Mises Institute in, in some of these uh, countries, too, who are just starting to kind of catch on to some of these freedom principles. I always see like these these Mises groups and and pages from uh, various countries around the world. So I, I think there's a lot of momentum in our in our corner, which is wonderful. And, uh, you know, I know we're already talking about Javier Malay here, which is basically a white pill in itself. But we are wrapping up the podcast now. And we talk about some, you know, pretty depressing and bleak topics, but we always try to end the podcast on a more positive note. Uh, with that said, you know, we, we try to usually get an estimation from our guests as to what a path forward could look like. Uh, you know, what will it take? And of course, you know, how we get there. I know this is more of a broad question for you, but like zooming out a bit, how do we lessen the impact of the regime in our daily lives? And how do we facilitate a more free world for our children? Well, I think, I think one of the most important things is to not fall into the trap of allowing a pursuit for ideological activism um, capture our lives. Mm. Um, you know, I, I see out there in the Twitter sphere, and you've, you've seen it with you know sort of the the, the Mises Caucus stuff and the Libertarian Party and the like, and and you know this is kind of the. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's you know I've, I've been there myself, right? You, we, we get very you know we, we discover these libertarian ideas. They they make us very excited. Um, you know, we we, we want to make our lives libertarianism. You know, you know, being an evangelical libertarian. Um, the problem is is that you know there are very few platforms that allow you to be um, wealthy as a narrow libertarian activist. Yeah. And so I think the most important thing is to focus on our own professional and, and family dynamic. If, if, you know, it's important to, to be well-read, it's important to be thoughtful, it's important for our own education. It also means to, to not kind of just stop at being convinced of, you know, being, being right and then kind of neglecting reading 
you know, kind of, you know, see a lot of people that, you know, they get, they get very energized, um, you know, because they, they, you know, read a, a Ron Paul book and they don't read anything further. I, I think constantly reading history, reading, you know, improving our own wisdom um, is, is important, not being complacent in that, um, but really focusing on our own development because, you know, while, um, you know, it, it is the, the evils that are perpetrated upon this are national and international, where we can really make a difference is local. Um, and so being someone that your neighbors respect in your own community um, is more important than being someone who gets retweeted by Dave Smith on Twitter. That could do me wrong. Dave's a good guy. He's a friend, but like that's that's that is that's something that's more a great important. Point. So I think I think being a leader in our communities, um, you know, you know, having families, um, you know, leaving a, a personal legacy that that can build upon on the things that really matter. Because we are libertarians, because we do not want the state to take over our lives, and so that means that you know we we need to relish and we need to have the same enthusiasm for the non-political aspects and non-activist aspects of our lives and thankfully i i i think that you know we're, we're seeing that you know I, I i i see that happening with a lot of people that you know that that are recognizing there's something deeper out there um than simply you know political activism or libertarian activism and I, I hope that trend continues here here <laughs> well said man excellent excellent uh white pill moment for the free thought project there guys and um gosh yeah i think that was probably one of the most genuine least cliche answers we've ever got and and not to say that we you know we, we've had some amazing guests but that one felt very uh genuine so thank you for that my friend all right free thinkers this episode is nearing the end we wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Now, I know you're on X or whatever it's called now. Uh, your handle there is, is simply your name, at Tho Bishop. Uh, also, I'd suggest people to follow the Mises Institute on YouTube and check out your podcast with Ryan McMakin. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug before we wrap up the show? Sure. Um, actually, if any of your listeners want a, a free book from the Mises Institute, uh, we're giving away copies of How to Think About the Economy, which is kind of a great short read. Um, and your listeners can uh, get your copy at uh, Mises.org slash RothPodFree, R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. That's kind of the Radio Rothbard code there. Um, again, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, great primer, also great to, to hand out um, to people. And also we have a uh, fall fundraising drive for the Institute. So if you're visiting Mises.org next week, you're going to get you know annoying pop-up ads. Um, but we, we do it one time a week because uh, or one time a year because um, you know it, it helps with our small donors and so if you if you care about the battle of ideas if if you believe in the ideas of the Mises Institute um, you know I, I highly recommend you know, making a ten dollar donation or something it, it helps us grow and helps us continue our work. 
Perfect, brother. So yeah, definitely go out there, guys. Check out uh, the Mises Institute. Definitely follow them. A bunch of great information. If you're new to this information, uh, one thing I would highly recommend is the Mises Bootcamp that's on YouTube. And that is excellent. That gives you a bunch of great resources by a bunch of great thinkers and intellectuals. But though I was one of the millions of people that Ron Paul inspired uh, to self-educate and to, to learn economics. And honestly, I'm so grateful that he did. I, it took my life in a totally different direction. Uh, I look through a different lens at life now. And I think your work with the Mises Institute is very crucial to understanding that bigger picture with economic policy, uh, cronyism, geopolitics, and history, of course. Obviously, so much more. But hopefully, we can inspire a new generation to be in, interested in these topics like Dr. Paul. And I, I believe once they do dig deeper, they will value the voluminous effort yourself and others at Mises Institute have put forward. So thank you for that, my friend. We certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. <laughs>